What is going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Very Cold Lasagna, the podcast that has a safe and open listening platform for casual, cold, and even the dumbest takes on the world of WWE, AEW, the NFL, and the wide world of pro wrestling and sports in general. I'm your host, Dylan Lasagna. Welcome to today's episode, episode number 37. And man, it's time to open up that fridge and grab that very cold lasagna because today, in this episode, we're going back in time, back to the past, for another retro view. That's right. We're going back into the old icebox, into the coldest, deepest parts of the fridge, into that old cooler for another blast of the past. Because this time around, we're going back to 1992. For SummerSlam. The SummerSlam you never thought you'd see. We're going to London, mate. <laughs> London, England. And, oh boy. You know, this this SummerSlam, you know. This was, honestly, the first time I ever watched this SummerSlam. This SummerSlam, in particular, has been talked about a lot. Particularly because of one particular match. And that is Bret Hart versus the British Bulldog, a.k.a. Davey Boy Smith, for the Intercontinental Championship in the main event in front of 80,000 people in London, England at Wembley Stadium. This is a match that, for a lot of wrestling fans, is hailed as one of the greatest of all time. One of the greatest, not just one of the greatest SummerSlam matches of all time, but one of the greatest overall matches of all time. And when we get to that point, (laughs) man, do I have a lot to say? about that matchup I, I really do have a lot to say but anyway um obviously before i get into my like shilling here i want to talk some things about this SummerSlam in particular because there are some interesting things um to note about SummerSlam 1992 this was the first major wwe pay-per-view again at the time it was known as the world wrestling federation but this was a wwe pay-per-view again wwf to take place outside of North America. This was the first major pay-per-view to take place in outside the United States. So, again, this was held in London, England. And it aired on two separate dates because of that due to the five-hour time zone difference between the East Coast and the United States and in England. So, I don't know how it is on the West Coast. I think that's like an eight-hour time difference where I am on the West Coast and where England is, I, I correct me if I'm wrong in that. So anyway, the pay-per-view aired on Saturday, August 29th, 1992. So it was essentially live for people that were in the United Kingdom. And it aired two days later on tape delay for the people in the United States. So I guess luckily in the 1990s, in the early 1990s, the internet was not a thing yet. So spoilers were not abound so this SummerSlam was originally supposed to take place in Washington DC at the now demolished Capital Century but because of the, the WWE's popularity in the United Kingdom and overseas and Vince McMahon saw the potential revenue he could get by having a major pay-per-view in, in a place like London he moved it to Wembley Stadium and interestingly enough, this was the first pay-per-view in a long time, actually the first pay-per-view at that time period, where top star Hulk Hogan, the franchise player that helped WWE be on the get on the map and help establish pro wrestling to what it is today, he was not present at the show at all. He was not on this pay-per-view at all, and this was because um, he took a hiatus. And this was during the time where these allegations were coming out about Vince McMahon illegally distributing steroids to his wrestlers. So it was, it was this time where these uh, the steroid allegations were intensifying. And Hulk Hogan was a part of it. So he was keeping a low pro- profile and it, it was going to get real heated if he remained on have had a remaining t- television presence so anyway this is the fourth largest um wwe attendance in history at 80,355 and this is the first SummerSlam to take place in a stadium of any kind hence why we're actually reviewing this SummerSlam in particular because next week next saturday 
is going to be the second SummerSlam to be held in a stadium, albeit the first one to be held in an NFL stadium in the United States. At well, the Oakland. I'm not. Oh, sorry, we're, they're not in the Bay Area anymore because the my San Francisco 49ers kicked their asses to Las Vegas. The L, the Las Vegas Raiders Allegiant Stadium, in well, admittedly a sexy stadium. So anyway. That's why we're, we're reviewing. We're going into the old icebox to SummerSlam 1992 to revisit the only SummerSlam so far to take place in a stadium until, obviously, SummerSlam 2021. So we're going to be taking a look at this SummerSlam. In particular, 1992, August 29th, obviously, August 31st for us people in the United States. But before we do that, before we go into the depths of the old icebox, we got to shill ourselves here on the podcast like we always like to do here to start this show don't you love it when i shill myself no i'm just kidding i love you all but anyway make sure to subscribe to very cold lasagna on youtube turn on the notification bell so you'll be notified of each and every vodcast that goes up on the channel as well as exclusive youtube extras like news videos that i don't cover here on the podcast as well as other rants other announcements any of that kind of stuff that don't get featured here on the podcast or in the audio version of the podcast. Speaking of the audio version of the podcast, listen to me on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Anchor FM so you can hear my beautiful voice or ugly voice on the road. (laughs) And follow me on Twitter and Instagram to see what's going on with the podcast outside of the podcast (laughs) at Very Cold Lasagna. So let's talk about SummerSlam 1992. The stage is set for... A beautiful night in Wembley Stadium. The, the sky is still blue for an interesting pay-per-view event in 1992. So the fans are all lined up trying to get into Wembley Stadium. And the show starts with the, the trumpet quartet. And as they're playing, we get various shots around London. As Vince McMahon and Bobby the Brain Heenan welcome everyone to SummerSlam, pal, on commentary. And we get the first match of the night. The Legion of Doom, Hawk and Animal, going up against Money, Inc., Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase, and Erwin R. Scheister. <laughs> if you could recognize those first three initials of his name, then congratulations. The first initial of his name, the second initial of his middle name, the third <laughs> the third letter of his uh, last name, then congratulations. I congratulate you. Honestly, not a lot of story behind this match, um, but... I guess everyone was just excited to see the Legion of Doom conquer the Money Inc. Um, because these these teams really wanted to crack at the WWE, uh, WWF Tag Team Champions, the Natural Disasters. And originally, this was supposed to be a match for the tag team titles, but um, Money Inc. lost the titles to the Disasters. So that match that was supposed to happen for the titles in this one carried over to the match that happened later on, which we're going to talk about. So, Ted DiBiase, um, Miss Hit IRS, there you go, <laughs> and the Legion of Doom hit a power slam uh, for the win. And, I mean, again, not much to say about this opening match. I mean, everyone was excited to see the Legion of Doom wearing that face paint, riding on on motorbikes, and having that... Um, full metal gear decked out so honestly they were pretty over team so um solid match to get everyone excited but i mean other than that not much to to write home about so in the second match we get nails versus uh virgil yeah everyone's favorite resident person at comic cons (laughs) his real name nails is kevin washals and nails it like the character was that he was big boss man, you know, uh, a, uh, an enforcer, a bodyguard, and Big Nails was Big Boss Man's ex-convict who was abused um, by Big Boss Man during his incarceration, and obviously Nails is is broken out because when if you ever watch this pay-per-view, he he's wearing his uh, prison clothes. Like it's um, I don't know the longest yard or something <laughs> or get hard. 
But anyway, and then as for Virgil, he was previously known for being Ted DiBiase's bodyguard, but then he became a babyface, aka a hero, and he was later involved in a, an alliance with the big boss man, and that led to this match with Nails. So there was an interview segment with Virgil right up before the match where he was talking about how crime pays, and he he's going to say it, it'll pay for Nails, who was already in the ring with a nightstick, and here comes Virgil jogging out to the ring to the most corniest 8-bit video game music you'd ever hear. <laughs> I, I would play a bit, but I don't want to get copyrighted. But, I mean, it sounds so corny. It was, but, I mean, it fit the time period. It definitely fit the time period. Like, Virgil's singles music, so corny. It is really, really corny. So, this is pretty much a glorified squash match. Because um, Nails was pretty much unaffected by whatever Virgil tried to do. So Nails wins with a chokehold. And he put a nightstick up Virgil's ass <laughs> after the match. Uh, no, he just choked him out. But come on, man. He's, come on. This, uh, I guess it was kind of funny to see Virgil come out um, to some corny video game music and get his ass whooped. And get a nightstick of the ass. <laughs> so then we get Rick Martel versus Shawn Michaels in the next match of the night. And I don't I don't know how rare this was too back in the day. But this was a heel versus heel matchup. And people were cheering for uh, pretty much both of them. Yeah. So I don't know how well this, this honestly worked. So Martel and Michaels were feuding with one another. After Michaels cost... Uh, Rick Martel in Intercontinental title match um, against Bret Hart and Martel was flirting with Michael's manager Sensational Sherry so Rick Martel is was this character of being a model he was like kind of like a hipster Um, he would wear various semi uh, formal clothing he would wear like a tennis sweater over over his, over his shoulders um and including his SummerSlam attire he was wearing like tennis attire as if it was Wimbledon or something and obviously for Shawn Michaels this was his heartbreak kid character like this narcissist egotistical um never trust the heartbreak kid this was Shawn Michaels like singles run in the early months at this time so in this match, in particular, <laughs> they were still trying to figure out like who to root for. And in this particular match, there was uh, another stipulation imposed by Sensational Sherry in which they can't hit each other in the face. So, during this match, they were trying their best not to hit each other. And at some at some point, Martel um, was knocked out of the ring and he later flirted with Sherry at ringside and even coerced her into a hug. <laughs> and Michael saw this and he brought him back into the ring where they tried to one-up each other on fruit roll-upping each other and trying to out-cheat each other. And they did this while also revealing their butt cheeks. <laughs> I'm like, come on, man. Come on, man. I don't want to see no man cheeks. I don't want to see no man cheeks. So they eventually break the no face hitting rule. Um, and Sherry was like, no, you can't do that. And then she tries to catch attention. She tries to get attention from both of them by by fake fainting. And both Michaels and Martel, being the the man divas they are, um, they try to revive her. And they're also fighting over who gets to do it. So they get counted out. Nobody wins the match. And afterwards, both of them take turns escorting Sherry to the back. And then Martel eventually splashed water onto both Sher Sensational Sherry and Shawn Michaels. And Sherry was left alone because Shawn Michaels chased uh, Rick Martel backstage. And Sherry was upset and embarrassed because not only was she left by both men, but she was drowsed in water. In front of 80,000 fans. Now, as for this match, <laughs> I gotta be honest with you. Um, 
this is actually honestly one of the one of the funniest matches of the night. Um, because just because the two guys trying to out cheat each other and the two being kind of goofy and stupid. Um, but it's their character. <laughs> Those are, it's their characters. Um, and it was, it was, it was a way to, to get themselves over. I mean, both were narcissist, arrogant, cocky, flashy heels. Um, and in the end it backfired. Like they tried to get the girl, but it failed because they couldn't outwit each other. And yeah, it had a non-finish and yeah, there were a lot of them back in the day. There were a lot of them at this pay-per-view too. But this honestly um, was one of the matches of the night because it was just the entertainment that it provided um, by both Michaels and Martel just trying to, you know, out-stupid each other. <laughs> if that makes any sense. So I was really entertained by this match because of Michaels and Martel being divas. So anyway, the next match we got was the WWF Tag Team Champions, the Natural Disasters, defending their titles against the Beverly Brothers. Now, the Beverly Brothers, Bew and Blake, um, their characters were, yeah, pretty typical, like, like as expected, like, peak WWE, like, the, the early WWE days. Like, they were pretty much in flashy outfits, um, they wore a perp, like flashy purple cape, purple tights, and their characters were pretty much that being a rich, spoiled brat. Both of them are. They were managed by the genius. His real name is Lanny Pofo, the brother of Macho Man Randy Savage. And his gimmick, their manager's gimmick, was that he was an arrogant brainiac that would berate uh, the babyfaces, the heroes, and the crowd with his high intelligence mainly through poems while he was wearing a graduation cap and gown so he's like oh i graduated with a gpa of 4.5 <laughs> so as for the natural disasters they were mainly known for their big size and powerful strength so they were pretty much just big dudes so they pretty much were feuding over one another because on primetime wrestling this was WWE show before monday night raw this was yeah this was WWE show on the usa network before monday night raw and the disasters attacked the genius during a brawl between these two teams and when the disasters won the tag team titles from money inc like i mentioned earlier this is some point before SummerSlam. this was the the title match this was the wwf tag team title match for SummerSlam. And I gotta say, this was a pretty solid match. Um, like, the Beverly's were doing what they can um, to chop down the big guys. Specifically Typhoon um, for a large portion of the match. Um, and every time Typhoon tried to tag in Earthquake, um, he, he'd be met by some kind of distraction from the Beverly's or some bullshit from the referee. It's like, oh, I didn't see the tag. You can't, you can't get in the ring. Not yet, sir. So, it was, it was just creating more anticipation from the fans. Like, they were just trying to generate some, like, hype until t uh, Earthquake finally got in. And once he got in, the crowd went bananas. He was an unstoppable force with the hot tag, flattening uh, the Beverly Bros, literally. He bumped he bumped uh, one of them. I don't know if it was Bow or Blake. But either way, he, flat he bumped into bell and then he squished blake for the three count to retain the gold they also attacked the genius again um and threw him out the ring so honestly this was um i guess this was one of the matches that had a story to it but not much of it but at the end of the day solid match um this was at least this got the crowd excited again after what two cooldown matches so it is what it is Next, we had Crush versus Repo Man. And this is a match that's actually pretty interesting, historically. Not because, oh, this was one of a match that people remember, but the people behind it. The, the people behind it. So, Crush, um, 
he, Crush, the, Crush and Repo Man were a part of a tag team, a well-known tag team during the golden era of WWE called Demolition. There was Axe and Smash, and Crush was a part of it too during 1989 to 1991. As for Crush, when he made his return to WWF in 1992, he, he kept his name, but he started using a character that was kind of like an easygoing surfer Hawaiian. Um, he didn't have the face paint, but he wore bright neon tights. And as his finisher, he used the Great Collie's like two-handed vice grip before the Great Collie used it, obviously. As for Smash, um, yeah, he was repackaged as Repo Man. <laughs> and yeah, he was like, he was... This was never acknowledged on WWF programming that Smash was repackaged as a Repo Man. And obviously, the gimmick was, yeah, repossessing items for people that were late um, on their payments on certain things. Like cars or houses or anything. And he dressed up like, as such, you know, a robber and a mask. <laughs> Repo Man, <laughs> I don't know what else to tell you. So, anyway, there's not, not a lot to write home about. It was just a pretty much a squash match like um, Nails and Virgil was. Um, I, I, I honestly find this match interesting in particular because of the paths both these men took after the split of Demolition. You know, Crush went on to have numerous gimmick changes um, after this, even before this. To be honest with you, and Repo Man, aka Smash, he went on to wrestle for WCW and around the world till 2017, and that's pretty insane. How, like how both of these men's careers, like, kind of went 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 off, like, kind of like off the rails. To be honest with you, so pretty interesting. That is pretty interesting. But I mean, the match was nothing to write home about. Um, so then we had the first major match of the night, and that was the WWE Champion, aka the WWF Championship match between the Macho Man, Randy Savage, going up against the Ultimate Warrior. The Ultimate Warrior! The high energy, the running down the ring, the Ultimate Maniacs that could get hyped up for the Ultimate Warrior versus the Macho Man, the Macho King! Randy Savage. They previously had a feud with one another like back in 1990 to 1991. At the time, at that time period, the Ultimate Warrior was the WWF champion. He won the title from Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania, WrestleMania 6, and Randy Savage wanted a WWF title match against the Warrior, but the Warrior was didn't want it. So, as revenge, he cost him the title against Sergeant Slaughter at the 1991 Royal Rumble, and that led to a retirement match at WrestleMania 7, which the Ultimate Warrior won and forced Savage into retirement. But he would be reinstated several months later. So, this feud would be reignited after WrestleMania 8 when the Ultimate Warrior was announced as Randy Savage's number one contender to his WWF title. And while they were coexisting um they would get into some heated exchanges of course in storyline and it also didn't help for both men that rick flair and mr perfect were causing trouble um for the two because rick flair was out for revenge because he lost the wwf title to randy savage and wanted a rematch and he didn't get that rematch because the ultimate warrior was getting the next shot at the wwf title and it was also being teased that Mr. Perfect would either manage Randy Savage or the Ultimate Warrior at the pay-per-view. So, we get to the match. Um, by the way, literally this, like, this tease of Mr. Perfect managing either guy was literally in, like, every segment <laughs> leading up to this match. Like, it was like a cut-in after every match. I'm like... Okay, we get it. <laughs> like, Mr. Perfect's either gonna choose him or him. Like, we don't need to know like every like after every single match. Like that kind of annoyed me after um 
that kind of annoyed me after the third match. So anyway, Mr. Perfect never came out with either the Ultimate Warrior. He didn't come out running with the Ultimate Warrior. He never came out, you know, striding around with Macho Man Randy Savage. So <clears throat> they actually came out um, mid midway to to the match. Um, Mr. Perfect teased that he could be in Warrior's Corner. He by distracting Randy Savage a few minutes later, and Mr. Perfect teased helping the Ultimate Warrior, and thus he could possibly be in Warrior's Corner. Um, but Ric Flair hit him with the brass knuckles with an assist from Mr. Perfect, and a possibility that it could be Randy Savage that enlisted the assistance of Mr. Uh, Mr. Perfect, and that assist gave. Randy Savage a chance to hit the Macho Elbow for a two count. But the Warrior made an ultimate comeback, which was unfortunately stopped by Ric Flair, who hit him with a steel chair behind the referee's back. And I gotta say, it was, it, this, this this thing was kind of wonky. I'm like, kind of getting overbooked at this point because, like, I don't know. It would be... It would be perfect that would help savage and then perfect wouldn't help warrior and then like it shit back and forth and back and forth and then then eventually flair and perfect would try to cause trouble for both of them until randy savage took notice and he went after flair but rick flair hit him mid-air with the chair and he got his leg and randy savage couldn't make it back to the ring he lost the the match by count out but obviously as in pro wrestling, you can only win by pinfall and submission. So Randy Savage kept the title. But Randy Savage was being down until the Ultimate Warrior chased him away. Now, it was also like, there's also like accounts that said that the Ultimate Warrior was supposed to turn heel, but he refused to do so. And honestly, that wouldn't have made sense. Like, even in the context of the storyline, the Ultimate Warrior was still too popular with the fans to coerce a, a heel turn. And it would have been really weird to see the Ultimate Warrior as a heel. Like, it really would have been weird. Like, I, I don't I, I don't think I would have liked... I wouldn't have liked it at all. So, overall, this match was not as good as um, their encounter at WrestleMania 7. I think that told an even better story. Um, than what this one did. Like, I think this one tried to tell too many stories at once. Um, and it also had a better ending with Miss Elizabeth reuniting with Randy Savage, even though the follow-up was, yeah, not good in storyline and in real life, especially in real life. So, yeah, the Ultimate Warrior, um, like, there were a lot of things that happened with the Ultimate Warrior. Um, he left the WWF. This was the second time he left. Um, around Survivor Series because again that refusal to turn heel um, on Randy Savage and again I don't think that would have been a good idea to turn him heel. Um, so after that, the Ultimate Warrior would have brief runs with WWF again in WCW in 1996 to 98, um, but they would be largely unsuccess unsuccessful. He eventually retired, and he would have beef with many pro wrestling figures. Like Vince, especially Vince McMahon, but he finally patched things up um, around in the 2010 decade. And in 2014, he was inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame. And he made an appearance the night after WrestleMania 30, talked with the fans, and gave them the spirit of the Ultimate Warrior. But sadly, though, he passed away the day after. As for Randy Savage, he lost the WWF title to Ric Flair a few weeks later. Um, and eventually transitioned to a color commentator when Monday Night Raw debuted in January 1993. And then he occasionally wrestled um, before he left for WCW in October 1994. Um, he would have a modestly successful career there. He performed the Mega Powers, won the WCW World Title, um, and he was part of the NWO Wolfpack before he left in 2000, and he eventually retired in 2004. Uh, he also sadly passed away in 2011 after he suffered a heart attack um, while driving. So, sad that both of these men are gone, 
gone too soon. So, overall, that match was, um, it, it again, not as good as their their match at WrestleMania 7. And honestly, I don't know if I'd recommend watching this match over their previous encounter. So, before the main event, we get Undertaker versus Kamala. This Undertaker was, I guess he was still trying to find its stride. I mean, sure, he was... He was getting, he's popular among the fans. He's starting to get to that point. But I look at this Undertaker as like, man. Um, this Undertaker in particular, it, it still feels kind of, it feel, still feels like it's kind of missing something. Like the later years of the Undertaker, like, like in the later half of the 1990s, that Undertaker was pretty good. Um, this Undertaker, obviously, still trying to find its footing. Uh, Kamala's, Kamala was the character was this vicious Ugandan headhunter with face and body paint copy, and it, this is pretty much based on a Frankie, a uh, Frank Frazetta character, and his story is pretty much that he was a former bodyguard of a deficit president of Uganda, and he he was discovered by this person called J.J. Dillon during an excursion to Africa. So, this that's pretty much Kamala's character. Probably something that can't be played in the year 2021, otherwise you get cancelled. So, Undertaker has the first of many cool entrances coming down in a hearse and while Paul Bear is walking in front with the urn. Um, even in, Inside the hearse was a coffin. Even though it wasn't a coffin match. So, I guess it was kind of like preluding to things in November to November like damn already so it was a pretty quick match again this was like a appetizer to the main event and this match pretty much featured Undertaker dominating Kamala but he was also being distracted by his entourage uh, Harvey Whippleman and Kim Chi wow (laughs) what a name so the match ends in disqualification um, for the Undertaker, and he was hit by with a helmet by Kim Chi. So Kamala gets the Undertaker knocked down. He hits him with three big body slashes, but Undertaker still managed to sit up, and he chases them away to end this match. So um, obviously, this this was pretty short and and sweet. I mean. It just pretty much extended the feud to Survivor Series where they would end up having a better match in the first ever casket match in WWE. So, for for Kamala, um, he would pretty much wrestle around the world after he left WWE, but unfortunately, uh, he passed away last year um, due to COVID. Um, obviously, we're for Undertaker. Well, we already, a lot of us should know his accomplishments already. Uh, multi-time world champion, High-profile feuds with the likes of Kane, Edge, Brock Lesnar, and others. Um, having that famous then undefeated streak at WrestleMania, and as as most recently uh, last year, he retired. So Undertaker had a, a very successful career in pro wrestling. So then we get to the main event: the Intercontinental Championship match between Bret the Hitman Hart and the British Bulldog. This was the reason why WWE had this event in SummerSlam to have Davy Boy Smith, a native from Wales, but he's still on home sa- on home turf. You know, give him a big victory, um, like a standing ovation in front of his homeland fans. So, for those of you who don't know, Bret Hart. No, he was known for his technical wrestling, but he was very popular among fans for his pink sunglasses, his pink attire. You know, he's the the pink and black attack. He, he was known as the best there is, the best there was, the best there will ever be, the best blah, 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 the best there ever will be, um, because he was like willing to put others over over himself, with the exception, with the eventual exception. Um, of that Montreal screw job against Shawn Michaels at Survivor Series 1997. That was the one time he refused to lose to Shawn Michaels. Um, and 
he he oftentimes was mostly present at shows. He was always had perfect attendance at shows, and yeah, and he had he had a technical wrestling background, but. Unlike with the technical wrestling of today, where it's just all the flips and kicks and all that bullshit, he was a re- real technical wrestler with the rest holds, uh, he and these back breaker, back body drop, these the double axe handle and his patented sharpshooter. Bret Hart had a variety of technical moves, so he wasn't just a one-dimensional um, flips and kicks guy that you see today. As for Davies Boy Smith, he was also a technical wrestler, and he he was a brother-in-law to Bret Hart, so he also had uh, power moves to his arsenal. So, as for David Boy Smith, um, he didn't have much of a gimmick, um, but he was hugely popular in the United Kingdom because of WWE's rating success on Sky Sports and their whenever they were on European tours. So. As I just mentioned, both of them were brothers-in-law because Davy Boy Smith was married to Bret Hart's sister Diana. So the build-up going into this match uh, revolved around the Hart family being asked about who were they rooting for, while Diana was just concerned about their safety, regardless who won. She didn't want anyone to get hurt in this match, and they had an interview with her right before this match, and she. Either was rambling off the script, kind of like what I do sometimes, or she was trying to go by her lines, but she couldn't do so in time before, right before Davy Boy Smith's entrance. And Davy Boy gets this huge hero's welcome, obviously due to the fact that he's in his homeland of England, and he was born and raised in Wales. So huge hero's welcome for uh, Davy Boy in front of eighty thousand fans, and Bret Hart comes out, very mixed reaction. Sure, he's hugely popular fans, but he's on hostile territory. So, Bret Hart controlled a good portion of this match with his uh, technical work rate. But again, this is like actual technical work rate with uh, rest holds, like variety of moves, like dives, backbreakers, back body drops, like you know, a variety of moves not, instead of just the usual flips and kicks you see today. <clears throat> but Davy Boy Smith eventually regained control in the back half of this match using his own technical work rate and his power moves. Um, so they're pretty much trying to damage each other with every move they got. And they sold they sold it in a decent amount of time. Like, they didn't just, like, no-sell it like you see with all these professional wrestlers today. They gave each other enough time to, to sell each other's moves, to get each other set up for the next move. That's how it's supposed to be in a match. Evenly pace yourself. Like, don't go too fast, but don't go too slow. Evenly pace this match out. So, near the end, Bret Hart gets the sharpshooter locked in. And he does this in a very interesting way. Both men are knocked down, and they're trying to get back up to their feet. And Bret Hart, like, crawls to Davy Boy and gets the sharpshooter locked in while he's lying down. It's like, I thought he was going for a figure four. But then he's going for the sharpshooter, and he gets up to complete the setup. That is pretty cool. So... Bret Hart, um, after Davy Boy Smith escapes it, he tries to go for a sunset flip pin, but Davy Boy Smith reverses it to pin him one, two, three, to win the IC title. And yeah, that was pretty much the main event right there. So afterwards, um, Bret Hart, he's like upset that he lost the IC title on a fruit roll up. Um, Bret Hart, he's like, I don't want to, I don't know if I should shake his hand. But then, after like a few sec, a few minutes, he eventually shakes Davy Boy's hand, celebrates it, him and Diana to close SummerSlam, all fireworks and glory into the night. And yeah, that was SummerSlam 1992. But man, this is the first time I watched this match. Like after, like you know, this being praised as one of the greatest matches of all time, um, both by wrestling fans and critics. I gotta be honest. For a match that's considered one of the greatest of all time, I'm going to get a lot of flack for this. This is a really hot take. It's kind of mid. It is really kind of mid. When I mean mid, it's just kind of okay. It 
It's, and I'm, I'm being generous. I could have been like, oh, this match sucked. It was kind of, it was very boring. But, I mean, at least, like, there was some story going into it. I mean, it wasn't just all, it wasn't, like, completely flips and kicks. Oh, like, who could hit the biggest spot in the match? I mean, there's, like, they were, try, they were actually trying to tell a story. They're trying, they're, they, this match was evenly paced. But, like, for a match that, like, you know, <laughs> actually kind of ran a pretty, pretty too long. I don't know. It, it, something didn't click. Something really didn't click with me in this match. Maybe, in fairness, I didn't grow up with a Bret Hart or Dave Boy Smith fully um, in the golden era because, well, and granted, I never became, I wasn't a fan until 2006. Like, that was like the back half of the Ruthless Aggression era. Um, heading into the PG era. So, I never got to experience, like, the, the in, in, like, fully the golden era of WWE. The new generation. The Attitude era. Um, the early half of the Ruthless Aggression era. I, I only saw, like, like clips and, and retroactively watching it. And that's pretty much it. Maybe I need to give this another watch. Maybe I have to give it another watch. So... I will say that the Bret Hart and Davey Boy Smith gave every move they gave, nearly hurt each other. They were trying to play it on commentary um, as if, oh, who's going to get the upper hand here? But I got to be honest, I was real, I was kind of disappointed with the finish. Like, I really thought that Davey Boy Smith was going to hit his running power slam and get, like, a clean one, two, three on Bret Hart. But it, it kind of ended cheaply, you know? Like, it ended out of nowhere. Like, a lot of these matches did tonight. Uh, not tonight, but tonight in 1992, I guess. You could say that. But, in all honesty, um, yeah, it just, even in 1992, it doesn't, like, a fruit roll-up counter into a, like, a, a fruit roll-up counter, a fruit roll-up, it, it honestly doesn't feel like the best way to, you know, book a champion, that seemed like they were bound to get a big push because eventually Davey Boy Smith, he didn't do any, like a lot of things with that, that push that he got because a couple months later, he lost that title to Shawn Michaels on Saturday night's main event 31. And then he was later released because he couldn't like, apparently the, the dude had a drug problem. He had a drug addiction and he, is the the drugs that he took that got him released was illegal growth, uh, human growth, uh, legal human growth hormone drugs from an England pharmacy. This also got the Ultimate Warrior released. Like, my God, you you ruin your best chance to get yourself an opportunity. Like the dude get, got an opportunity to be successful. He was widely popular, but took drugs and ruined it and although he would have two more stinks with the wwf not as popular he was not as popular and less successful um as he was in 1992 when he got that push so not only that he and diana divorced in january 2000 and sadly um david boy smith passed away in May 2002, due to a heart attack. And conversely, Bret Hart would be promoted to main event status. He would rise up the ranks starting in October. He won a, the WF title, his first of his first of many for Bret Hart. He won the title from Ric Flair at a house show that lasted up until WrestleMania 9 in that match with Yokozuna. And yeah, that ending with Bret Hart, Hulk Hogan, and Yokozuna. Yeah. Yeah, about that. <laughs> so, Bret Hart also had these key feuds with Jerry the King Lawler, his brother Owen Hart, Stone Cold Steve Austin, that high-profile feud, and most notably, his real-life rival at the time, Shawn Michaels, where they had that 60-minute Iron Man match in the Montreal Screwjob. So, that feud, and going back to that feud with Austin, that included a work shoot against Vince McMahon, than the WWF and the critically acclaimed 
submission match at WrestleMania 13 with Austin. And both of those things planted the seeds for WWE's Attitude Era. So, although Bret Hart was not really a guy that was willing to adapt to WWE's transition to an, to the Attitude Era, and he, he didn't really look like the guy that would would fit in the Attitude Era anyways, he, you know, he helped pave the way for it. He helped pave the way for the Attitude Era. It's like, no, I'm not going to be the guy that... <laughs> That, that adjusted the attitude era, but like he was still willing to help pave way for the next generation. So despite that loyalty, Hart left for WCW because there were other th- other factors. Despite him wanting to stay, he was pretty reluctant to stay. Um, he he well he couldn't stay because the WWE's financial situation. They were losing the they, they were at a point. Where they were losing money because they were losing the Monday Night War to WCW um, because they couldn't, and as such, they were unable to honor Bret Hart's insane twenty million dollar uh, twenty year contract, which probably was twenty million dollars, and of course the Montreal screw job. Bret screwed Bret. Vince McMahon screwed Bret Hart, um, both literally and figuratively, and that led to Bret Hart like getting like getting his feelings hurt, like and rightfully so. Leaving for WCW, which was marred with questionable creative decisions and injuries, including a severe concussion that ended his career. So eventually, in time, um, Hart patched things up with WWE slowly but surely with an induction with the into the Hall of Fame, and he made his first true appearance on WWE TV since 1997 on January 4th, 2010, to bury the hatchet. With Shawn Michaels over the Montreal Screwjob and have like a wrap-up uh, storyline with Vince McMahon leading up to WrestleMania 26. So overall, this pay-per-view, SummerSlam 1992, it honestly gets overrated a little bit. Um, maybe because I'm too young <laughs> to understand, even though I'm um, I'm in my early 20s. Um, I'm too even then. I'm still probably too young to understand its true its its impact. Maybe I haven't watched enough of WWE uh, Golden Era besides Hulk Hogan to like truly understand the value of SummerSlam '92. And I don't know. I still think that Bret Hart versus Dave Boy Smith is kind of overrated. It's not great. It's not terrible. It's just I don't know. It just doesn't feel like the match that people make it out to be it i think it just gets overly praised as one of the greatest matches of all time because um there's a lot of good technical wrestling there's a lot of rest holds and all that but i don't know i mean at least it didn't have flips and kicks and all that bullshit um but i don't know maybe i, I get maybe have to watch it again maybe I have to watch it again maybe I have to watch some like prime time wrestling to <laughs> understand it um maybe it's just me Maybe it's just me. I maybe have to watch more of of this story, more of the older WWE Network leading up to SummerSlam, and even before then, maybe even before then, to understand a lot of this. Because right now, it's it's hit or miss. SummerSlam 1992 is hit or miss. But again, it could be a lot of things. It could be a lot of things. So overall. SummerSlam, even if I have mixed feelings on it, it's a two-match show because there are a lot a lot of jobber matches, a lot of squash matches, a lot of quick matches in between um, mixed in with a WWF title match and the Intercontinental title match. But I will say, I was pretty entertained by Shawn Michaels versus Rick Martel. I honestly was pretty entertained. I was laughing at it uh, because of how entertained I was, surprisingly. Um... And other than that, yeah, it was pretty miss for me. It was pretty miss. So depending on how you feel about it, um, I don't know if I can recommend SummerSlam 1992 unless you like you really think Bret Hart versus Davey Boy Smith is one of the greatest of all time. I don't know. It's just my thoughts, my opinion, my take. I know you can bash me because I don't think Bret Hart versus Davey Boy Smith is the greatest ma- one of the greatest matches of all time. 
But let me know. Let me know your thoughts about SummerSlam 1992. However you can. Comments um, on social media. Comments on YouTube. Or a, rev- a review on one of these audio platform sites. Anything. Any, any way to uh, leave some feedback here on Very Cold Lasagna. In this episode in particular. But that is it for this episode of Very Cold Lasagna. I am your host, Dylan Lasagna. Thank you for tuning in into another edition of the old icebox as we escape the coldest depths once again with an from an with another retro review of WWE and in particular SummerSlam 1992, the first SummerSlam in this inside a stadium. Because next week, SummerSlam will once again be inside a stadium. And to be honest, SummerSlam this year, I don't have the same excitement that I had weeks ago. So it, it's honestly how I like SummerSlam 1992. It's kind of like me, how, how I feel with this SummerSlam right now. It's just like, yeah, whatever. But anyway, that's it for this episode. I am Dylan Lasagna. Thank you for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe on YouTube, turn on the notification bell so you'll be notified of each and every very cold lasagna video, episode, what have you, that goes up. Make sure to listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Anchor FM. Follow the show on social media, on Twitter and Instagram at Very Cold Lasagna. Next week is SummerSlam weekend, and that means we got predictions, a review, all that coming out next weekend. And again, I don't know if I'll be excited for this show. I really don't. Like, a lot of the excitement went downhill fast for this show. But nonetheless, it's in Las Vegas um, in that new uh, Mark Davis UFO. That is Allegiant Stadium. Um, The Raiders have their first preseason game. So for those of you that um, are looking to see how the the Raiders Stadium is going to be for SummerSlam, well, Go, go watch that Raiders preseason game against the Seahawks or something. Um, but, yeah, overall, SummerSlam 2021 is going to be something. But SummerSlam 1992 was definitely something, but mostly hit or miss. But anyway, that's it for me. I'm Dylan Lasagna. Until next time, keep that lasagna very cold in the fridge with your takes on the world of pro wrestling and sports. Very cold, very chill. And until next time, peace out.